Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and today we are going to talk about who benefits from capitalism. I have a special guest with us, Dr. Joy Buchanan, who is an assistant professor in the Brock School of Business at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Her research interests include behavioral, experimental, labor, and institutional economics. Now, she's on today to talk with us about uh, a chapter that she co-wrote in a book called Counting the Cost, Christian Perspectives on Capitalism. And the title of her book is Who Benefits from Capitalism? Uh, Joy, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we're recording this. This happens to be the first episode I'm recording since most of the United States and the world has been shut down from the COVID-19 pandemic. And a lot of a lot of things are getting thrown around about how terrible capitalism is. And, you know, of course, people like libertarians are pointing out that, you know, this is not really capitalism and stuff. And so there's always that sort of debate over, you know, well, when someone says capitalism, what exactly do they mean? So I guess for us to start a conversation about who benefits under capitalism might be helpful for us to make sure that we know what you're talking about. So how do you define capitalism? Mm. Yeah, that's a great lead in. I do think there have been some failures on the part of the American system and the American people. And I understand that a lot of people are frustrated right now. And I would not say that that's a failure of capitalism. Um, I think, again, I think there's blame to go around. Um, and that's never an answer that people like to hear here. But um, you can um, definitely point to government regulation as a source of friction now that a lot of people seem to understand what the threats are and what the problems are. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of people who would like to be working on solutions, especially if they would get paid to do that. And one of the reasons why it can be so slow to get anything done in America is because healthcare is very heavily regulated. And sometimes that doesn't feel like a problem. But now suddenly we need to move very fast. And that's what governments and regulated industries aren't as good at doing. Mm -hmm. um, it becomes more difficult to just get permission and to go through the established steps to do things like develop a new test or even something as simple as manufacturing masks actually becomes very difficult when it's a regulated commodity. So... Then there's also the problem of people who actually are trying to interfere with the prices for these things. Um, there have been plenty of libertarian-leaning blogs about price gouging, so I, I hate to recycle that point almost, but <laughs> it, it's worth saying that if the price of masks is high, people will make them. And if the price of masks is low, then people will hoard them. No one will produce them. And ultimately, they will not get to the people that they need to get to. So I, I would hate to say that anyone is totally exempt from blame right now. Um, and, I, and I do believe that there's more that all of us could be doing. Um, I'm actually working on a project right now called nationalfevertracker.com, where I'm trying to create a place where everybody can contribute 
um, in the form of data every day. So that's how I personally am trying to contribute to this. Um, that, that website is live, nationalfevertracker.com. But the, the problem of how to get protective gear to you know, medical workers is, is all very serious. And I certainly don't see that as a failure of, of capitalism per se, but I can understand why people who are frustrated right now are not sure why things aren't just instantly appearing where they need to be. It's a complex situation for sure. So did you ask me to define capitalism? Yeah. I, well, and, I, and more more specifically, would you, do you like to add the word free market to the word capitalism or in your mind, does that sort of, is that redundant? And you can go ahead with your definition or, or your best understanding of how to, you know, frame it when you're talking to people about it. I think it's nice to add free market to the beginning of it, partly just because that's the, that's the positive sort of connotation that, that we like to have. Mm-hmm. And capitalism is sort of a, a technical term. A lot of people don't really know what it is. So free markets, I think, is a helpful thing to, to tack on to the beginning. Um, so when I think of capitalism, I think of it as a system where individuals can make their own choices about what they do and who they trade with. Um, I think of a country where if they have a capitalist economy, there's minimal intervention by the government into everyday life for most people. Um, and if most people are following basic, not harming each other laws, that they're free to make choices about what kind of work they do and what kind of items they buy. So I don't, I don't see any problem with putting free market in front of it. Maybe that's helpful when you're talking with people who don't have the luxury of mm-hmm. thinking about these things all day, like, like we do. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I, you know, I think a lot of a lot of people think of the word capitalism, and in their mind, you know, they might have a picture of, uh, you know, Wall Street or big corporations, or you know, even now in the news, you know, there's been you know the two point three trillion relief program um, that Congress has passed, and so they see that you know they're getting a twelve hundred or something or other dollar check, and these big corporations are getting like way more money and that there's, there's an inherent bias or not bias, but there's an inherent unlevel playing field for big business and corporations and things like that. And so the, the perception, and, and a lot of people have this perception anyway, let alone like it's just in our news, in our faces right now, that if you're, if you're big and well-connected, then, you know, it favors you. So it really feels like whatever, whatever we call our economy and it's largely capitalistic that there is, there's winners and losers. And those who don't have large amounts of capital or assets are um, are losers, and the people who are you know at the top they're winners, and we just keep getting worse. And you know, yeah, you know, it it just kind of goes to you know their argument just essentially goes to like, well, look, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and so why would I believe in capitalism when it seems like you know they're getting more of the pie? Um, so what, what are some, you know, and again, I, I realize to some extent to a libertarian audience, this is not exactly new territory to have this kind of conversation, but you know, you're a teacher, so maybe you can help us like explain this to people that it can be, you know, an, just another way to be convincing to people to say, Hey, that's not really what this is. Um, I may have lost you in my, in my question. Cause I didn't really ask you anything. <laughs> Well, I feel, like, I feel like there were two things going on there. Um, okay. One might be how are large corporations fitting into the picture right now? Again, this is, I mean, this is probably the biggest news of my lifetime. Um, you mm. know, this pandemic 
Um, so on on one hand, I think you could say that businesses like Amazon that were so vilified for are turning out to be one of the most important players we have in getting things to people. I mean, they already have in place online ordering and this incredible supply chain that's enabling a lot of us to stay home um, who otherwise might not be able to. So uh, I think big business and efficient business is actually, um, I don't I don't know if it's really underappreciated right now. Um, I mean, with all the people placing Amazon orders now. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. so, so I think that it's, it's worth just pausing to acknowledge what they're doing to help. But then um, it, it is certainly worrisome if they have now an outsized influence on politics or if it starts to feel like there is limited competition in the face of such an efficient sort of machine, even just in hiring talent in a local city. So, so I can definitely see why, why big corporations can cause people to be unsettled and, and cause them to feel like they have less power. And, and I do think a, a point that libertarians have been repeating for, for a long time, even before we saw the level of corporate consolidation that, that we have now, is that nobody should be favored you know, by the political system. And, and the ideal would be a political system that just isn't for sale anyway, so that it wouldn't matter so much you know, who, has, who has more money. Mm-hmm. You know, to that pie analogy, you, know, you said something in your chapter about the, you know, most people think of the economy as this big pie and, you know, it's like, you know, you could say it's 10 trillion, $10 trillion economy and, you know, and the wealthy people quote unquote control, you know, you know, so 80% of it, you know, like the top four people control the wealth and people use those terms as if things are fixed. And one of the phrases you have in your chapter is that there's this, there's this idea that everybody brings home more food tomorrow. Like we're not just eating at this pie and it's disappearing. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's something else going on there. Yes, definitely. So the fact that some people are doing well should not bother us because if our neighbors are doing well, we'll probably be doing even better tomorrow. Um, We thought of sort of a fun story to tell in our chapter where there's one version of a fixed pie scene where you could imagine a family gathered around a table and the only thing on the table is one pie. And the only thing they could possibly do that evening is consider how to cut it up and obsess over how to cut it up. And if one person gets a larger piece, that comes at the direct expense of another person. Um, And you can see how that just leads to a very bitter group of people. <laughs> um, and so that that is to contrast with the not fixed pie or the non-zero-sum game that we believe capitalism embodies, where instead of thinking of one pie on the table and just bickering over how to cut it up, you think about going through your week and making decisions that will lead to there being possibly more pie on the table. Like if you go to a market and trade, or if you get a job and you provide services to someone, and then you end up with money that you can trade for more things. And suddenly it all just becomes about how you can plan your actions so that there's actually more pie for everybody. And then you might not obsess so much about how much um, one person has versus another, because that's not the game that you're playing. You're, you're not playing divide, you're playing grow. Um, and so we feel like that's really the, mm. the greatest 
selling point of capitalism. It's not how things are divided up at any one point in time, but in the, the dynamism of the system and how um, people become better off over time through, through good decisions and good relationships. What are some of your favorite biblical passages or biblical support for believing that free markets are something that Christians should advocate for? So the Bible talks a lot about money and the economy. It's a big part of our lives, and it's a big part of the the stories in the Bible. There are some verses where people are warned against the dangers of money. And I think some people have misinterpreted those to believe that money or even that wealth is inherently bad. So I do think it's true that money can be an idol. And so from a spiritual perspective, if you believe that you have lots of money and that your security rests in that, that that can be a trap or if you are a uh, sort of selfish person fundamentally and you don't think about the other people in your family and your community, that that is not only bad for them, but it's bad for you from a spiritual perspective. Um, so those, those warnings are, are certainly worthwhile. But in general, in my reading of the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament, wealth is seen as a blessing and material well-being is seen as a sign of flourishing. And not everyone has had all the opportunities that, that we have today, but the idea that sort of material well-being is, is a good thing and it's something that we should at the very least be pursuing. I mean, we shouldn't be obsessing over whether we have enough or, you know, getting more, but the idea that to, to become more wealthy yourself and to make other people more wealthy around you is, is a good thing, I think, is all throughout Scripture. So in our chapter, uh, we pull out three instances that we think illustrate this. So Jesus tells some really interesting uh, stories. We, we often call them parables. And uh, we, we have a, an interpretation of a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 of the talents that we think indicate that we don't, we don't not only think that it indicates that wealth is a good thing, but it really debunks the idea that Christians should not uh, pursue business and should not be creating wealth or should be somehow shunning the capitalist system. So in this story, there's this sort of hypothetical manager and he's going off on a trip and he leaves, he entrusts, his wealth to some of his servants, and some of them are given more than others, and there's never a justification for that, really, um, although you could, you could try to read one in at the end. And the ones who are given more while he's away, they grow their wealth. They go out and trade and work, and, and um, not only would they not lose the money, but they actually increase it. And so when the manager comes back, he's really happy about this, and he says he's going to give them even more, and, and that this was a good thing for them to do. Um, so if you take a super simple, literal interpretation of some of those other verses that say, you know, that the love of money is the root of evil, then you might be confused because, you know, they made more money. So how could the, how could the manager be happy with them? Mm -hmm. But, you know, to be engaged in wealth creation is great. And that's kind of, I think, part of what we're put on earth to do. So I think it just kind of shows the, the positive side of that and that it should maybe release some people from fear if they're sort of fearful of money and, and fearful of the, maybe even fearful of the capacity of capitalism to create great wealth. 
And then there's the there's the other servant who um, who was given less to begin with, and then does nothing with it and creates no wealth and you know makes no one better off. Um, and and that servant is told that he had sort of done a bad job. And then you can you can imagine if you if you think through, maybe that servant was given less to begin with because the master knew the character of that servant and knew that you know it wouldn't it wouldn't be invested well. Mm-hmm, that's an idea. That's something that you could sort of read into it. And then uh, another another Bible passage that that we pull out is the sort of famous Proverbs 31 woman. So churches talk about this Proverbs 31 woman a lot, and she's sort of this example of a wonderful woman and wife and mother and you know a godly person. And I, I think some people maybe have missed some of the some of the verses in Proverbs 31, um, there's actually a lot about economics and trade. <laughs> so you you think like if if this is what a human is supposed to be, if this is sort of the the ultimate godly person, she is engaging in production and in trade, even in global trade, um, and she's definitely not canvassing and voting to raise taxes on the wealthy. I mean, she's like <laughs> making wealth herself um, and and making wealth for other people. And that's held up as this sort of shining example of what, you know, I mean, what sort of a godly person is and, and how you how you function in this physical world. So I find that yeah, she's not like a progressive blogger from home. Yeah, she's not. She's not ranting about how her neighbor has more than she does. Um, she's just she's using what she has and she's making more out of it. And that's how trade works is that you actually can create more than was there before. If you are sort of creative and, and understand other people and and put yourself out there. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think many, many men could benefit from becoming more like the Proverbs 31 woman. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, And and, you know, funny when you, when you read these old Testament examples, because, they kind of paint her as sort of a, a wealthy woman, you know, like maybe she has her own house and maybe like a lampstand or a skin rug or something. And, and um, it's just funny if you think about how much wealthier we are today than these, you know, quote, wealthy people were back in, back in the Old Testament. And a lot of Americans, I think, really take for granted what, what we have and even how wealthy someone is who's relatively poor in our country. And if if you just try to compare yourself to just about any Bible character, you might feel better about what what's going on and what you have and what your neighbors have. What are some what are some misconceptions people have or some things that people miss when reading the Acts 2 story about, you know, they held all things in common, you know, you point some things out in your chapter about what people often miss that there's actually a lot of commerce actually happening there. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting that, that anyone would ever try to use the Acts 2 community as a justification for communism. Um, the, the, key, the key phrase that people like to repeat is, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And that's the first sentence. But then if you read the second sentence, it says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so this is a very generous and loving community. And it sounds like the kind of community that anyone would want to be part of and would want to picture themselves being part of. But 
I think it's really important to point out what's going on in that second sentence and what is actually enabling all of this great generosity. Um, Mm -hmm. So it says they're selling their possessions. So that implies that there is a somewhat free market and that they're able to sell what they have, um, maybe to each other, but probably to people outside of this community. So this community is fairly small and it's not some kind of large, you know, Soviet communist system. It's a fairly small community and it is supported by a broader free market in which they're able to trade and buy and sell and and get the things that they want. Um, And that's what allows them to have stuff to give to each other. Um, And then there's this this key word in the second sentence, and, and they were selling their possessions and belongings. Belongings. I mean, that, that implies private property. So if, if you're truly trying to be very radical and try to um, upend all of capitalism, you might, you might go so far as to say that you want to abolish private property because look um, how it has led to inequality. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have belongings, you don't have generosity. I mean, if, if you don't have belongings, all you have are people following orders. And, you know, chances are they won't follow orders all the time, but um, that's all that you're left with. And so the idea that these people owned this stuff and then for, for a period of time, they chose to give it away and to, to some extent uh, reduce the inequality um, among them is, is fine and, and noble and, and something that I think should inspire all of us. But the, the underlying sort of political or legal framework that they're working on is a free market with private property. And you can't have the Acts to community without those things. You know, you mentioned something earlier that is a theme of, you didn't mention it this way, but you talked about human flourishing, and I was going to say that it's our theme for the year for Libertarian Christian Institute. And it's very obvious to me how trade creates wealth and how trade alone, and I realize that's kind of like the whole point of free markets is that we have the ability to freely trade. Trade alone is like such a key component to everybody benefiting. Like even without the argument, even if you like set aside the argument over the you know inequality and who has more favor and so forth, even those who are unequal, when they trade, they're better off. And so, you know, this whole idea of human flourishing can't happen without without free trade, without tr- without trade. And the freer it is, the more flourishing that can happen. So what do you think capitalism does to enable or produce human flourishing? Well, I mean, you, you sort of explained it a little bit, but trade is sort of like the, the magic fairy dust in, <laughs> in wealth creation. Um, I mean, you could imagine someone is at the very least allowed to work at their own homestead and not have their produce be confiscated by the government and they can, you know, they're free to work as hard as they want and maybe they have their family with them and they can, you know, possibly feed themselves. Um, don't ask me what happens when someone gets sick. I don't want to know. But then when you add trade into this, that's when, I mean, it, it almost feels magical. Like you can almost get something out of nothing. They don't have to work harder. They just have to find the largest market that they can insert themselves into and find kind of where they, where they fit in, where the needs are and where their comparative advantages. Um, so if, if you think of like, I have a jar of jelly and you have a jar of peanut butter, that's something better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're able to exchange with each other, I mean, even taking money out of the picture, then we're both suddenly so much better off and no one worked harder and there wasn't 
more stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're allowing people to exchange and sort of create better combinations of what existing stuff we have, then suddenly people can become much better off. And that's exciting. I mean, I, I wish more people sort of thought about just the, the extremely positive aspect of that, because I think that's what makes it easier to get excited about capitalism. Yeah. I mean, it's, you'd think that people who, you know, these like super radical left-leaning people who are like, we should just get rid of all money and we should just get rid of all, you know, currency and we shouldn't, we should just barter or we should just be able to have what we want. And I'm like, well, even at that level, you have to acknowledge that you got to do something, you know, it might be free for someone else to, you know, take from your garden, but at least you don't have like, and you could go take from their garden. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you and I could just suspend all the problems with that whole situation. But like, at least at that bare level, you have to admit that like, you're all doing things that you don't have to do in a, in a world where you have to do everything yourself. Like you just said that they don't have to work any harder. And I thought in my head, well, actually they don't have, they actually get to work less hard mm-hmm. because now they can say, oh, I don't have to go like learn to figure, like I don't have to figure out what happens when my child does get sick because I'm, you know, I can go to the doctor right. or I can right. go, you know, and go get the peanut butter instead of just live with jelly, right? Like it's just life is less hard when we trade, even, you know, suspending all those other economic laws, trade makes us better, even if it makes us just feel better. Um I'm sort of ranting against people who just don't see the obvious here, and I'm sure you're. <laughs> I'm sure you're with me. Well, no, okay. <laughs> so you you say it's obvious, and and it may it may seem obvious, but I think it's not obvious. I think that I think there is still a big role for, for economic education. Um, you mentioned that some people want to get rid of money, and that just made me, you know, so upset because <laughs> money money is so great, really, and. I don't think that this is widely appreciated. Um, I did not think this way until until I encountered an economics professor who got me to think this way and, and got me reading Hayek and got me asking these questions. I, I never would have thought that money is a particularly inherently good thing, or I never would have thought that prices serve a function. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was maybe 19 or so and really hadn't... Um, hadn't had the right kind of economics education because you can take a class in economics and still not come out with this. But when I, when I finally sort of saw the role of prices, that's what made me want to do this for the rest of my life and, you know, stay, stay in economics, you know, spend an embarrassing number of years in graduate school um, because this is just such an incredible system. And, And like I said before, at the very beginning with, um, the counterintuitive idea that it's actually better if the price of masks is high, it's not obvious. And there's still, um, I think there are still people who who would be open to these ideas if they were presented in the right way and mm-hmm. how prices get things to their most valued uses. Uh, most people, they look at a price and they just wish it was lower and they look at money and they just wish they had more and they just don't really appreciate the um, the dynamic system and, and how it creates wealth for everybody. It's, yeah. it's not, not obvious. So I feel like that's why there's still so much to be done. So many podcasts to be done. Yeah. Right. Well, I guess, you know, you're of course, right. I know it's not that obvious. Otherwise we wouldn't have to have this argument. We wouldn't have to be making an argument for it if it were so obvious. Um, at the same time, I think it's just like, how come I can't convince more people this way? <laughs> and, and, you know, more frustrated with my inability to convince them, but uh, you're right. We need to have the 
you know, the right arguments. And and some people aren't presented uh, either economics or libertarianism or just free market ideals very well. And, you know, like what comes to mind is uh, Ron Swanson on Parks and Recreation, like, you know, for all of his wonderful character qualities, um, there are some things in there. It's like, you know, free markets or, you know, how God chooses who survives and who's stupid or, and who is poor or something <laughs> like that, who is smart and who is poor or something like that. And it's just like, no, that's, that's not really it. Um, and so people have that sort of, you know, misinformation about things, but. And, yeah. and also I think the, the, the focus on inequality versus growing pie thinking is another major barrier for people because they, they look at the way the world is today and they see that some people are seem very happy and seem very well off, and some people seem very unhappy and very poor, and that just feels so unacceptable to them that they that they want to reject the, the system that you know got them in this place, yeah. which is sort of more of the fixed pie thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's but it's very I think it's very natural to think that way. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that whole inequality thing. How do we think about inequality? Because that one is not, you know, you you said that the whole, you know, uh, trade creates wealth is not obvious. uh, And, you know, you you look at inequality and you think, oh, well, yeah, that's really not obvious why inequality isn't bad. Because inequality doesn't feel right, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, you you look at your circumstance and you see there's always somebody better than you. There's rich people and they're getting away with all kinds of things sometimes literally getting away with the murder, right? Because they have they have wealth. And so this system, whatever we call it, is creating those situations where some people have more than I do. And so there there is a way in which we can think as Christians about inequality. And I'd just love to hear what you have to say. Well, there was a lot going on there because suddenly the rich people were murderers. Um, well, I so. mean, <laughs> no, I don't mean like all of them are, but like... I think injustice, needs to be separated from inequality. I think injustice is always completely unacceptable. And I suppose when you when you combine economic inequality with rich people getting away with uh, bad stuff, that, that might breed even more uh, contempt for the mm-hmm. system. Um, and, and unfortunately, that, that can be true, that, that rich people can sometimes buy immunity for themselves, which is something that libertarians, I think, rail against. Yeah. Um, as as everybody should. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, inequality doesn't feel good, and that can that can bring us back to the Acts to community. And you think, well, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be nice if you know there was more there was more sharing, and maybe it would be nice if there was more sharing. But you sort of have to live in reality, not just a wouldn't it be nice kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. So. Like like I said before, when we were discussing Acts two, I think the the sharing that makes us feel so good can only happen in a mostly capitalist society. Um, and if you if you try to use a political bludgeon to reduce inequality too much, we've seen what happens with that. Very ugly. Everyone is worse off. It does not lead to like hugs around the campfire it leads to mm-hmm. gulags and backstabbing and cheating and mm-hmm. stealing and you know it, it doesn't given given what we have given the scarcity and human nature that we face it doesn't lead to mm-hmm. um some kind of beautiful acts to kind of feeling it, it, it yeah. it's quite the opposite 
Right. If you want to avoid rich people getting or the, the haves getting immunity from crimes, then let's go the other direction from free markets. Yeah. So I think a lot of people probably could be more generous than they are. <laughs> Maybe they'd be happier even though they'd have less stuff. But that is a very different topic from how our legal system should be structured and how we should incentivize people to supply things to others. Mm -hmm. It's easy to be jealous of a multimillionaire or now today we have so many billionaires, it's easy to be jealous of them. But generally speaking, if you're an American billionaire, you got that way by providing incredible amounts of value to incredible numbers of other people. Um, and that is something that you should actually celebrate. I mean, again, if according to your you know previous narrative, if they're like secretly murdering people and getting away with it, then then yeah, that's not that's not okay. Um, right. Well, you don't want them to have completely outsized political power, or you know feel like the laws don't apply to them anymore. And in, in a very corrupt society, maybe that would be the way that you would feel about mm -hmm. about wealthy people. But that's not you know what I think of as, as capitalism, and, and I think in fact. Today, a lot of the wealthy people, at least in the United States, got that way through taking risks and just providing incredible amounts of value to other people. So you can't spend too much time resenting them. Um, it's actually their example that inspires more people to take risks and be creative and develop new products and provide incredible value to the rest of us. Yeah. One, one time I was listening to Econ Talk and I heard Russ Roberts say something along the lines of, you know, at some point... It's um, in the past, we, we didn't have billionaires, we had millionaires, you know, 100 years ago, it was the millionaires of the day who were who were the vilified, you know, robber barons. And now we have billionaires. And it probably won't be in 100 years. But we'll, well, maybe inflation will make it this way. But we might have trillionaire, <laughs> trillionaires someday soon, right? Yeah. And so, you know, inflation issues aside, the idea here is that like, there's a new top tier to that one can aspire to right and and it's largely i mean it, maybe you can correct me if i'm wrong but it's largely the case that through silicon valley and some of the tech the tech industry that the wealth that has been created over the past 20 to 30 years has largely come from the gains through through technology innovation and so that now we have something that we can call a billionaire where these companies are you know trillion dollar a couple we have a handful of trillion dollar companies maybe not right at this moment but they've hit that in the last couple of years and so we we have this new top right like do we really want to live in a society where the top person can only be as productive as say a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> and so as soon as, or, or 500,000 or whatever, like rich means in someone's mind, it's like, well, you know, nobody should have more than a million dollars a year. Okay, well, fine. Except that means that their productivity level is, you know, really, really low. And relative to you, that means that you're going to be poorer off. Like we really, we really want people to have a high level to achieve. So it's like, we can aspire maybe not to be the billionaire, but that that's such a high, like, yeah, of course, there's only like 20 people in that category or whatever the small number is. But like, that just means that make that there is a bigger ceiling for everybody. Is that a good way to think about it? Or am I a little off there? Yeah. And, and I think if you, if you won't allow people to achieve great things, they might just leave for a country where they can. Mm -hmm. And so the U.S. has benefited hugely from this because talented people come here from all over the world. And, you know, some of them become billionaires and 
to have an environment where that can happen seems to attract, you know, the world, the world's best people. And that's something that um, has been hugely beneficial for us. If you look at what's going on today, you also see the upside to having some very wealthy, smart people around. I mean, Bill Gates and now Jeff Bezos have been out there fighting this epidemic. Um, I think Jeff Bezos just donated $100 million to food banks. And Bill Gates has been doing, you know, amazing things every day for mm-hmm. decade, and and now he's starting to do it, you know, right here in the United States. And to have someone who didn't spend all their money mm-hmm. <laughs> and has some wealth around uh, is is actually a good thing. I mean, they wouldn't be wealthy if they just ran out and spent it all. Um, they're they're saving a lot of their money, and and then when it comes time to do something big, they have the the means to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking this this whole time. I'm like, I, I realize that wealth can be used, you know, in in bad ways. And you no, know, I don't think Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, you know, were 100%, you know, pure free market, you know, wealth creation. However, um, man, God bless the billionaires who now have the capacity to to direct wealth in a way that is beneficial without without a lot of strings. Um, or without a lot of like direction from the state. Now, clearly there's some limitations there, but um, yeah, I mean, we've, we're, we're seeing a lot of that, you know, it's a good thing they have the wealth. So there, there's a, there's a section in the chapter that you wrote on whether or not economic growth is a gift from God or scientific effect. And I thought that was a very interesting title. And I, I'm just kind of curious how, how can you, um, can you elaborate on that for, for our listeners? Um, all right. I, can't promise that I'll remember precisely how to put it, but um, I mean, one thing that we that we found interesting is that if you look at the Ten Commandments, this is a very early set of rules that God gave to people. We've got some good rules in there, like don't kill, don't steal, and don't envy what your neighbor has. And so, if you follow those rules, like if if everyone is following those rules you will tend to get a fairly prosperous society. Um, they, they mesh very well with economic development. Um, if nobody's stealing, then there's an incentive to be productive and you can still get plenty of exchange. It's just it's voluntary exchange. So it's the type of exchange that makes people better off. Um, then, and then there's even that piece in there about don't be envious. And you might think, who cares about that? That's a victimless crime, you know? Um, but there is this interesting connection to, um, you know, envying other people and, and uh, a society where people are able to flourish and, and grow and sort of develop their full capacity. And if that means them getting rich, then uh, assuming they are following the rules, then good for them. So there are rules. There, there are actually um, other passages in the Bible where um, people who are deceitful and who are taking advantage of the poor and who are trying to especially, you know, like legal advantages over the poor. There's Mm -hmm. some really trashing those people and saying, you know, this, this makes God angry. (laughs) It's not, it's not having the wealth that makes God angry. It's the, it's the using it to abuse other people and and thinking the rules don't apply to you. That, that um, seems to get God going uh, based on the Bible. Um, So like a, a money changer who's using false weights and who's, um, not actually in, engaging in voluntary exchange because people think that they've gotten something from him that they haven't. 
um, that that is really looked down on. Um, sorry, I feel like I'm getting off the God or scientific effect. No, no, um, it's okay. So, so trying to get back to that. Um, so I feel like uh, the 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 set of sort of moral rules that are laid out in the biblical framework are very conducive to economic growth, and so we as economists study how societies become wealthy and and we feel like we've come up with some consistent patterns there i mean almost almost and i don't want to take this too far but almost like a physicist feels like they understand a system of you know moving interacting particles and that they can make predictions based off of Mm -hmm. their understanding of what's happening economists have developed theories of how how wealth is created and, and how economies grow. So that is a somewhat scientific sort of study of, of how people become wealthy, both as individuals and as groups. Um, and then you could also view good things as, as gifts from God. I don't see any tension between something being a gift from God and something having a cause that you can understand you can rationally understand. And and I think maybe maybe part of our point was that it is a blessing to follow those rules and to be with people who follow those rules. And the, those rules are not meant to make life not fun. They're actually meant to make life fun. And so mm. um, some people just resent rules fundamentally <laughs> on their face. Um, <laughs> but like these, these, uh, rules actually make it more enjoyable to be here and to be with each other. And, and they're kind of the precursor for growth. Um, and, you you know, you can think about stories of ancient times where it's just like a lot of marauding back and forth. <laughs> and anyone who, you know, had wealth probably had it destroyed by marauding bands mm. pretty quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And that is miserable. I mean, that is completely miserable. And so to, to be in a society where that doesn't happen all the time is something I'm very grateful for. And, and I feel like it's uh, something I can thank God for, and I do, but it's also something that I can understand at a more scientific level. Yeah, well, I, of course, I agree. And, you know, I, I have often thought, you know, like, what else would you expect from a society or from a, a world where people happily doing things for each other, mutually agreeable. What else would you expect than some sort of prosperity or human benefit, <laughs> let alone the prosperity and, and flourishing? Yeah. And and I think that's evidence that human flourishing and wealth creation is not antithetical to what God wants from us. Um, I, you know, it's like, okay, we're supposed to follow the rules. Okay. If we follow the rules, we get wealthy. So Therefore, wealth is probably not a bad thing. <laughs> it's probably not right. something you need to be scared of as a as a spiritual person. Before I let you go, um, I know you have a forthcoming paper on the horizon, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that. Which it's called, I guess it's a working title right now. My reference point, not yours. Um, can you, can you tell us what what that's about? Because we'll we'll link to the paper and and your website and things on the show notes page. So for people who, you know. Uh, want to look you up, uh, we'll be able to do that. But what's this uh, forthcoming article about? Excellent. Yeah, I'd love to do it. So the article is called My Reference Point, Not Yours. Um, And this is 
something I've done um, as an experimental economist, and it's um, forthcoming at a journal. So the idea here is that people aren't very good at imagining what other people are up to, at predicting what other people are going to do. We tend to assume that other people are in the same position that we are, and then we tend to assume that their future behavior will reflect that. So I think an example of that right now um, is with how we expect other people to do social distancing. So in case anyone is listening to this podcast and it's not 2020, um, (laughs) social distancing means that you should stay home Stay away from people as much as possible. I mean, if you must go get groceries, you can do it, but make sure you don't come within six feet of another breathing human being. Um, And some people who live in nice houses and have nice backyards kind of think that that's such a no-brainer and that everyone, you know, should should be doing it and it's just not that big of a deal and you should just turn on Netflix and wait for the experts to tell you to come out of your house. Um, And that's not the case for a lot of people. You know, everyone has a very different living circumstance. Going home is different for some people than others. And I think it's easy to become sort of complacent if your home Mm -hmm. is a nice place and and how, you know, how other people are going to react to this, um, to this suggestion or even this order to stay home and not leave. Um, But that's, that's sort of a possible application to current events. Um, The experiment itself is very general. Uh, We actually just use, um, Sort of probability to, to ask people how they think others will behave, and they seem to predict that other people will behave the way that they did. Um, and this is an incentivized prediction. So uh, this maybe almost ties into what we were talking about with morality before, because there's this phrase like, if you want to understand another person, you should walk a mile in their shoes. Um, and this is sort of presented, I think, in a moral framework. Sort of your Atticus Finch, who could have sympathy for for, um, underprivileged people, and that this is something that we sort of should do, but we don't. You know, most of us don't actually do it, um, but it's sort of framed in a moral way. And in my experiment, you're actually paid more if you make more accurate predictions, and people were still not very good at it. So I think one of the takeaways is that this is a difficult thing to do for people, and even if there's a financial incentive involved, to be able to sort of view things from another person's perspective is, is difficult. So I think it's something that we can work on. And I think it's, I think it's valuable to just sort of have this very stark objective presentation of why it's difficult mm. and that can help us to overcome this and to be, you know, you'll, you'll be a better business person if you can better predict what other people are going to do, but maybe also a better citizen. Well, that's fascinating to me. And I look forward to looking into that more um, and hear, hearing some of the outcomes there. Um, is is it already due to be published or is it you're still like working on it? So it's it's finished and it's accepted. So I don't think it has been published, which means I can't give you like a volume and issue number. Right. Okay. But it should come out, you know, within the next year and, and it is it is finished. So you can go to the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization and, and you can read the sort of finished draft. Ah, okay, good. So then I will link that to the show notes page. Joy, thank you for thank joining you so us. Yeah, thanks for joining us for this episode. Um, I really appreciate your insights, and you—you actually, you're you're so polite at correcting my faulty thinking. So, um, (laughs) and and where I was like a little sloppy in the way I asked you certain things. So this is this has been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you.
I enjoyed it too. Thank you. Stay safe. Yeah, same to you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.